morning, Grace. You're all here. Didn't stay in bed. God bless you all. It's great to have you here today as we are in our series, Elijah, a man like us. I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles if you have one, hopefully you do, to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. And as you do so, I'd like to draw your attention to these candles that you see in the front here. Uh, I'm not sure if many of you are familiar with this or not. Um, Some who have not grown up in a tradition uh, such as... uh, well, most people that have grown up in many evangelical circles are unfamiliar with the term Lent. You might have heard it, you may not know a lot about it, but the term Lent is simply comes from an old English word that means lengthen. It's this period of time, the 40 days before Christ's resurrection from the dead, Easter, and it begins on Ash Wednesday, traditionally done in some churches where they take the ashes, the ashes come from palm branches, the palm fronds from the previous year's Palm Sunday service. They take the ashes, they put them on a head, and it's marked on an individual's head to show a sign of repentance, of consecration, of preparation for this time of year. And it's become, in many circles, unfortunately, very superstitious. Like the act itself saves them or gives them points in the sight of God. And we know, according to the Word of God, that's not true. However, it doesn't mean, though some have been superstitious with it, that means we we throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. Because Lent, this period of time is a time of preparation as we look forward to the resurrection of Christ. Within church history, especially within Scripture, Lent is a huge deal. Especially Easter is a huge, huge deal. I think many of us have forgotten the significance of Easter. We focus all our attention as evangelicals on Christmas. It's the time of year where we, we pause and we get together with family and we have presents and parties and things like that as we think about the birth of our Savior. And even the secular world pauses for a little bit during Christmas. But not too many people do that for Easter. It's, not a, it's a little bit harder to get excited about a crucified Savior dying on an instrument for capital punishment. But that is exactly the means by which God decided that we would have redemption, is through the crucifixion of our Lord. Matter of fact, in church history, early on, it was the, Easter was by far the bigger deal. And in, and in a lot of ways, we've lost that emphasis. And our goal, our desire, is to draw our attention to what our Lord did for us during these next several Sundays. There are six Sundays preceding Resurrection Sunday. And what we're going to be doing each week is we're going to be extinguishing a candle. You see, Christ is known as the light of the world, is He not? Amen. In Scripture. And many traditions have an Advent candle where we light it each week in preparation for the light of the world coming into the world. Well, this is just the opposite. This is understanding that He was coming to die. And the light of the world was going to be extinguished. And and Lord willing, each Sunday we're going to extinguish a different candle. And then on Good Friday, we will extinguish the last candle. But praise God, Resurrection Sunday morning, they'll all be lit. So what we do like to just draw our attention to that, to be thinking a little bit more introspectively. And not just introspectively, but outwardly. Do things different during these next several days as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter. Take more time to teach the passion story with your families, to read it with your spouse, or to teach it with your children. Possibly, look, think about fasting. I challenged our men yesterday at our men's breakfast to consider fasting during this period of time. It's usually considered to be a time of self-denial or also helping others. Look for other opportunities to serve the Lord, helping others in need during these next several days. And let's ask for our Lord's blessing during this this season 
for each one of us, that Christ might be seen in each one of us in a greater way, that people might be drawn to Him, the one true Savior of the world. Amen? So let's pause and ask God's prayer on these next several days and on the message time as I blow out this first candle. Two candles. There we go. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful that you came to save us, that you set your face to go to Jerusalem because you knew the suffering that awaited you, but you knew the redemption that would be accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we know that you came to seek and to save that which was lost, which is us. And Lord, you gave your life willingly while we were still yet enemies, children of wrath, followers of the prince and power of this world. Lord, we, we followed the one who blinded our eyes to, to keep us from seeing the light of who you are. Forgive us. And Lord, we know that you have decided to lavish your mercy upon us through Christ Jesus, and for that we are supremely and eternally grateful. So Lord, during these next several days, as we prepare our hearts, please bring revival to each one of us. Help us to see you in a new way. Draw us closer to yourself. Lord, help us to go deeper in our walk with you. Help us to spend more time in reading the Word of God, more time in prayer. And Lord, maybe even learn what it means to fast, because we know that you desire us to fast for you. Lord, because when we deny ourselves, we're showing that we are not sustained by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Lord, glorify yourself in our midst as individuals and as a church that people might be drawn to you, the one true Savior of the world, and they might have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hopefully you've turned with me uh, already to the first Kings chapter 18. Not only is this the time of Lent, but today, now I know some of you aren't sports enthusiasts uh, that aren't big into sports, but this is the selection day for the NCAA tournament. Maybe you've done a bracket at your work. Have you ever done that before? Maybe filling out one of the brackets. You don't know about all these different college schools. But the amazing thing is, is the seasons, all these college basketball schools are ready to go. It culminates in now. That's why we call it March Madness. And all these teams uh, are gathering together on this bracket. They'll be put together on this bracket, and they're going to play one, one another, and it's going to get down to the final four, and then the final two, and then the end of it. And the winner takes all. Today we're going to talk about a winner takes all. And it's Elijah. This is Elijah's magnum opus. If you have never read this passage, I hope that you will just journey with me to see all of its vibrancy and all of its strength and power. Because this is, this is Elijah's moment. This is everything that he's gone through. Everything that we've talked about up until this time culminates in this moment, in this passage. This is one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture. I hope you would get excited about this as I am. You can tell that I'm excited. I haven't even had caffeine this morning. But please, uh, let's look at the passage together. And we are in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to be reading from verse 20 through verse 40. It is our custom here to stand for the reading of uh, God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. 
And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning till, until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slaughtered them there. Blessed be to the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Winner takes all. Baal versus the one true God. We've been studying about this for the past several weeks. If you haven't been here, we learned that Baal was the Canaanite fertility God. He, had, he was the one who brought rain upon the earth and also was also known as the God of fire. He was a tempestuous God, one who was very capricious, who had no problem just punishing people or his followers for pretty much no apparent reason. And the nation of Israel at this time was split into two. We had the ten tribes to the north, known as the kingdom of Israel, and the two tribes to the south, known as the kingdom of Judah. Elijah is in the the ten tribes to the north, ministering to this kingdom of Israel. And this nation had gone apostate from the get-go. They had, from right out of the gate, out of the blocks, they were completely gone bad giving themselves over to all different kinds of idolatry and false gods, worshiping different bulls or whatever it may be. They, they followed, they bowed down to it, they gave themselves to it. But God was calling his people back and was using Elijah to do it. We know that Elijah had spoken to the wicked king Ahab, who was ruling the nation at this time, the most wicked king in Israel's history, and called him and, or told him that it wouldn't rain for three, and a half, or three years, accepted his word, and for three and a half years it didn't rain. And, and God told Elijah, after he had taken him through the three and a half years, and we've learned about this in the last several weeks, that he sustained him by the ravens, by the brook Kishon, that he 
or, or Cherith. And then he took him to the widow of Zarephath where the woman's supply of oil and flour wasn't exhausted. And now he has taken him to Ahab after he met with Obadiah. We learned about that last week. And now it's game time. It's the showdown. Everything ends right here. And he says, I've got a challenge for you. I'm gonna... And he confronts them is what he does. That's the first thing that he does is he confronts them. And he says, let's look at our text, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if it is Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. See, winner takes all means that there has to be a confrontation, first of all. And this confrontation means we must make a choice. He says, how long are you going to continue in the life that you're in? Now I ask you the same question. How many of us in this room are limping between two opinions? In other words, we're riding the fence by trying to hold on to this world and trying to hold on to God at the same time. Many of us try to do that. We want God, but we want to have our fun, right? It's like the old Puritan definition. People thought a Puritan was someone who was... Uh, or they thought God was someone who was prowling around looking for someone who was trying to have fun and then trying to stop them. (laughs) That's not God. That's not what God does. But many of us, we think that. We think that God wants to keep us from having our fun and from having our sin. And we compromise. And he's saying here, no, 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 you can't have it both ways. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It doesn't work that way. You can't have Christ and something else. It's like trying to board a 747 and trying to keep one foot on the ground. It doesn't work. Either you're on the ground or you're in the plane. Or you're on trying to, you see some, someone at the dock and they're trying to have one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock. Tell me how long that's going to last. Eventually we're going to fall. We have to have one or the other. And that's what Elijah is saying. Either follow God or follow Baal, but not both. He's saying, make a choice. No longer live in a compromised position. That's my second point underneath that. Let her be in your notes. No longer live in a compromised position. Many of us are doing that right now. We are living a compromised life. We want to take from God the good things that make us feel nice, but we don't want to take the hard, concrete steps of obedience that He has for us. And God says, no, 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 you can't continue to do that. You can't continue to have this world. You can't continue to lie at work. You can't continue to to cheat on your taxes. You can't continue to look at porn. You can't continue to lie to your spouse. You can't continue to live with someone who's not your spouse. You can't do that. God's saying, no, 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 no. You choose. Because see, when we try to live compromised, we are taking the name of Christ and rubbing it in the dirt. We're saying that it wasn't sufficient enough. It wasn't great enough to bring about our redemption and freedom from sin. We're saying that we are putting sin on the same plane as Christ's sacrifice, atoning sacrifice. We can't do it. And that's what Elijah is saying. Hey, wake up. You can't continue what you're doing. If Baal is God, follow him. And if the Lord is God, follow him. Stop limping. Stop riding the fence. Stop it. Don't do it any longer. Don't live any longer that way. 
no longer live in a compromise position. It's been said this, what compromise living is like. Some man has said, the church which marries the spirit of the age, or this world, will find herself a widow in the age to come. It's a pretty profound quote. So Elijah confronts them, but then he, he lays down the gauntlet. It's, he issues a challenge. He issues a challenge. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. Now let's pause there for a second. We learned about who last week? Obadiah. Notice, he's not saying a lot about Obadiah right now. He says he's a lone prophet left, but he also thinks he's also the lone follower left. He says, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. Now, notice before, at the end of verse 21, and the people did not answer him a word. They didn't say anything. Nothing at all. When he confronted them, they were mute, speechless. But now they said, that's well spoken. We'll take that challenge. Because Baal is the fire god. He's the rain god. Answered by fire, he's on home turf or Mount Carmel, 1,400 feet above sea level, looking out over everything. They're saying, yeah, Baal can do this. We accept the challenge. Now, this challenge involved two things. It involved a sacrifice, preparing a bull on the altar. Each one was to cut and prepare the, uh, the bull according to the specifications uh, of sacrifice. And then it involved a sign. A sacrifice at a sign. The sign was fire coming down from heaven. It was game on. It was time to go. This was it. Everything that Elijah had been through and done was going to culminate in this contest. It was time for the competition to begin. That's Roman, uh, Roman numeral 3 in your notes. It's the competition to begin. Look at verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, several hours, saying, O Baal, answer us. This is my favorite part. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Now what we're going to do here is we're going to see that this competition involves some crazed activity. They were crazy. Look at all the stuff that they did. They cut themselves. They pierced themselves. They walk around until blood flowed, trying to get their God's attention. I mean, they offered up this choice sacrifice. They called upon their supreme being, but no one answered. No voice. You know, that's how idols work. They can't answer us when we need them. They're not there when we need them. We, we, we give all credence to them. We pay all attention to them. We give everything to it. But when the time comes, they can't save us. They can't save us. Not at all. So they offered up this choice sacrifice. They called on the name of their supreme being, Baal, and nothing happens. And this is what Elijah does. Look at verse 27. And at noon, this is after several hours, maybe four hours, five hours. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. He's being sarcastic. 
Either he is musing or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They're slicing themselves. They're beating themselves up. They're trying to beat themselves in such a way that Baal pays attention and answers them. The thing is, though, is that Baal's not real. He's not real at all. There is no, no answer. They offer up their cries of supplication. They get, go into their custom of self-flagellation. And the answer is complete silence. Nothing. Verse 29, At his midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. No one cared. And nothing happened because idols can't save. As the psalmist declared in Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8, he says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. When we have an idol in our life, we become what that idol is. A.W. Tozer said it very well. He said that history will show that no man has ever risen above their concept of God. In other words, we become what we worship. If you worship alcohol, you're going to be a drunk. You're going to be unforgiving. You're going to care not about the feelings of others. If you're, you're going to get into your idol, it could be success, then you're not going to care about anybody else around you. See, that's what success is all the time. This is a dog-eat-dog world, the survival of the fittest. Everything that we do leads to other people being brought down so we can be lifted up. What are the idols in your life? And as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We can make an idol of anything. And I know that each one of us has our own secret little idols. They don't have to be statues. Although some might even have that if you've come from a background where you grew up with that. But we all have idols. It could be your spouse. It could be getting that certain job or getting that promotion. Or it might be that relationship or reconciliation of something. It could be your education. What is your idol? What is it? Maybe it's building up your bank account for retirement and everything is leaning and just focus on that. What is it? Some are trying to find a spouse in so much though that they have forsaken God in the process and sacrificed their integrity to marry whoever will come along. What is the idol that you're nourishing? We all have our own little idols that we nourish in the dark places, but we know that Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. As the church father, Augustine, said, O God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. See, our hearts are are restless until we find God. We have a a giant-sized or God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. But what we try to do is take other things of this world and fill that hole with them. It could be sex, money, power, family, beauty, strength. Achievement, success, sports, hobbies, spouse, etc. We can make anything into an idol. But idolatry is simply the wrong way of finding God. We're trying to find God in the creation rather than the Creator. I like how G.K. Chesterton said it. He said, even when men knock on the door of a brothel, they are looking for God. What he meant by that, or his point was, even as we look to sin, we're looking for that hole in our heart to be filled. 
problem is we're looking, at, looking for it in the completely wrong place. See, these guys had become what they worshipped. Crazy, antic-driven prophets because that's who their God was. A capricious sadist who enjoyed watching his people go through pain. Contrast that with the calm approach of Elijah. Let's look. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. He gives them an invitation. Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And then he goes about the task of restoration. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. This is pretty profound what he's doing. Many commentators, as I've read this, just skip over this entirely. And I think it's to the detriment of the passage. He rebuilds the altar. And he builds it with twelve stones. Remember, what kingdom is he ministering in? The northern kingdom. How many tribes are there? Ten. How many stones does he use? Twelve. He's showing that in the sight of God, the nation is still one. And that God had called the people for himself to be a kingdom of priests. Even the nation of Israel was to be a kingdom of priests to show who God was through their lives. And it was founded. The, the hallmark of the Jewish faith was the one true God, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it talks about loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy when he quotes that, and when he mentions that in Matthew chapter 22. The nation of Israel was to show by their lives who God was, and they failed. But Elijah is showing the center of our existence is God. And it has to have the right foundation. That's God Himself. God wants our worship. See, it's an altar to offer sacrifice as an act of worship. See, God wants our worship. That's what Matt Calmer was all about. God wants the hearts of people because He wants their worship. Why? Why does God want our hearts and why does He want our worship? Because He just enjoys the compliments? No, because it's in his, it's our act of praise that He communicates Himself to us. The more, when we praise God, God is communicating Himself to us. He is showing us who He is and how great He is and the reason for which we were made. As Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7 says, God, we were made for the glory of God. We were made to display and reflect God's glory. That is the purpose for which God made us. He delights in showing Himself in us. Even as we fast or even as we, we suffer, we are showing that God is more valuable to us than food. Or comfort. We are to be showing by our life that Jesus is the Christ. That He is worth more than anything else this universe could ever mean to offer. It's not Jesus and anything. It's just Jesus. That's all it is. That's all it's about. He's the single defining person. I mean, He defines history. He defines time. He is the creator, the sustainer of all that is, was, and ever will be. He is the one that came to give His life for us. The Creator stepped into creation and assumed flesh for our benefit so we wouldn't stay and die in our transgressions and sins. That we might be forgiven and have a life eternally with Him. And we're not going to be in heaven strumming harps, people. No offense to Betsy. But we're going to be eternally praising Him in a rapturous and joyous place because at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, we'll be experiencing Him in the fullness and the integrity of who we are. That's why we tell people about who Jesus is, because this world is passing away. But God, He will remain firm. His word will remain firm as the heavens. 
That's why he's rebuilding the proper foundation. How about you? What's your foundation? What are you holding on to? Because you know if it's an idol, it's going to leave you when the time gets hard. This book, though, won't change. This is the foundation. The foundation of our faith is found within the Word of God written. It's God's love letter to us. It shows us how we are to live, how we are to organize our lives, and how we are to pursue God in such a way for our joy. Do you know Christ pursued His joy? Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. We're to pursue joy in Him. As John Piper has said many different times, and it's a most profound statement, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When people see how much we are living in the light of Christ's countenance and loving Him in active discipleship and obedience, God is glorified and other people see Jesus in us and are drawn to the Savior in very profound ways. Very profound ways. So these guys, though, they'd given themselves over to idolatry. They weren't following what God had required. But Elijah, he has this calm approach. He restores the altar. He gives them the proper foundation, which is actually revealing the proper adoration that they are to have, the proper devotion. This isn't in your notes, but you can write that down because God wants the hearts of His people. Look at the the text. It says that now you have turned their hearts back to you. Turn their hearts back. Back to you. That's a pretty phenomenal statement because God wants our heart. He wants our worship. John, the book of John, uh, Jesus with the woman uh, at the well. God seeks worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He seeks worshipers. He actively seeks us to worship Him. Are you going through the motions in worship? Are you just mouthing the words going along? Are you trying to lift your heart to God to see Him who is holy? The one who made you, your creator and your sustainer. Have the proper devotion or adoration. God wants our worship. Worship is serious business in the sight of God. Think about the Apostle John with the angel in the book of Revelation. After seeing what will happen in the future, John falls down to worship the angel in two different instances. Both times rebuked because worship is meant for God alone. The angel says, don't do that! I mean, he is exclaiming it. Don't do it! Don't you realize what you're doing? See, worship is so serious in the sight of God. We have to be so careful how we enter into the presence of God. As as Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, let your words be few. Worship is serious business. Peter refused worship offered to him because he knew it was meant for God alone. Satan wants our worship. It's what he tried to get Jesus to do in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And he was thrown out of heaven because he sought to be worshipped. See, Elijah is establishing the right foundation, worshipping the right worship of God. He doesn't want us to limp between two opinions. Let's go back to our text. Let's look at verse 32. And he made a trench about the altar as great as could contain two seas of seed. So it's quite wide. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the ground. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water round around the altar and filled the trench also with water. The altar is saturated. Saturated with water. Can you believe that? I mean, if you wanted to get your sacrifice to light, this is not what you wanted to do. 
But see, the prophets of Baal were known how to, to be deceivers. Kind of like the guys you go to magician shows and sleight of hand and moving things back and forth. See, they could do that and they would light stuff behind it. He's showing, no, 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 there is no trickery here. And I'll show you that right now. I'm dousing this with water. Now remember, what's going on at this time? It's a drought. This is very precious water. Whether or not the water was drinkable water, or whether it was from the sea which was nearby, we don't know. But whatever the case may be, I'm sure that they were looking at themselves as he ordered them to put water on the altar. And not just once, but three times. He wanted to show that there was no earthly person behind it. There could be nothing but God alone. There was no deception, nothing under his sleeve. The only way that this could be lit is if God did it. So what did he do next? Let's look at verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. What did he do? He offered a prayer of supplication. He prayed. What a prayer life he must have had. But the weird thing is, is the Bible says, especially James, that we can pray in a manner like him. Do we do that? I know I don't. I ask God to increase my faith. As Pastor Andrew was sharing with George Mueller last week in our ABF time, here is a man who was resound or uh, resigned to showing that it was through God alone that his ministry was established. He never asked for money for anybody as he established these orphanages. And all of these children, day after day, received food miraculously. People would show up at their door and it said, my cart just broke down and I have all this bread that's going to go bad. Can you use it? That's miraculous. He's showing that he was sustained by God and God alone. He prayed. Are we praying for other people? Are we praying expecting God to answer? I'm amazed at Blaise Pascal, who was a mathematician and philosopher in the 17th century, who was also a believer. He said that God established prayer to give His creatures the dignity of causality. God, in one of the mysteries of the universe, allows us to make requests of Him, and He is willing to answer them. But what does that mean? What does that mean? I've asked myself that question. I have have been just like you and wrestled in prayer and had to to reign in my mind and my mind starts to wander or I start to fall asleep and I start to think of all these different things. And I I say, what does that mean then, God? Do you really answer? I mean, really. I mean, I prayed for things in the past and you didn't seem to answer. What does that mean? Well, it means that, and I learned later, that I was asking wrongly. I was asking for my own selfish desires. As John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 15, he says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. God will only answer us according to that which is His will. If we ask for something outside of His will, such as something sinful, for our own selfish desires, He will not answer. As James wrote in James chapter 4, verse 3, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But what does that mean then? How does God then answer our requests? Well, it's like this. Imagine for a moment that we're at the dinner table together. When I ask you to pass me the salt... Because some people say, well, why do we need to ask God of anything if He already knows what we're going to ask of Him? 
Now, say that we sit down and, and I, you know that I need salt for my meal, but yet you're not going to pass it to me unless I ask. If I say, please pass me the salt, and you'll pass me the salt. It's the same with God. God says, you know, I'm gonna, I know you're going to ask me, but I want you to ask me anyway, because it not only brings a change in the situation, but it brings a change in you. So God gives us the dignity of causality. But He does it in His own time, too. He answers His request when it's according to His will, and He answers it in His own time. Imagine the dinner table again. God is at the head of the table, and He is the host. Anything on the table is the will of God. God placed everything on the table for our good and to be enjoyed all in the proper time. We can ask of Him anything that is on the table, and He will give it to us. But imagine for a moment that what we want is dessert, and it's time for salad. Will He give it to us? Is it on the table? Not yet. The dessert is still in the kitchen will be brought out at the proper time. See, there are some things that are not on the table yet. He will give it to us, but in His time and not until then. Once they are on the table, then we can ask, but until then, we cannot. We must wait patiently. God will answer us when we pray to Him as we pray according to His will in accordance with His timing. A sure sign of a weak faith and prayer life is that we fail to come to God expectantly. It's not that we come with our grocery list of items that we simply check off as we go through them. No, we come with our requests because God has told us to come with them. And it's not that God doesn't know what we need. He does know what we need. We come expectantly in faith because without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. Are you praying expectantly? Have you just given up? Are you just going through the motions because you know that's what you're supposed to do? Are you truly asking God, believing that He will answer your request if it's in His will and according to His time? I would challenge us all for that. Are we praying and seeing that God would work? Ask God to remove any unbelief. To just wipe it away. To blow it away. To take it all away. That we can just see Him. Now, let's go back to our text. In verse 38, we've come to the culmination of the story. This is it. Look at verse 38 with me. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering in the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. It's the end of the battle. At the end of this epic battle, we see God's response by fire. That's the first thing. See, Baal, they thought Baal was the God who answered by fire. But in Scripture, we see that God is the, who answers by fire. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 24 says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Or 1 Chronicles 21.16 And David built an altar there to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Or Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.1 After he finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You know what's amazing to me about that? I mean, God is known as a consuming fire. But what's amazing to me, and it's an act of grace, is that fire only consumed the sacrifice. It didn't consume the people. The people deserved judgment. It was an act of God's mercy and grace to not put the fire upon the people. He simply showed Himself to be God on their behalf. 
What did the people do? What did they do next? Elijah says, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. We see here the peoples now, they are, they are rejecting the false prophets of Baal. Now he commanded the people to seize them and had them slain. And that might be severe to us, but Jewish law required idolaters to be put to death and commanded the false prophets to be destroyed. That's what he commanded they led the people astray. So they reject him. They put them to death. Now look what happened to the people in verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. We see the people return to faith in God. God had successfully turned the hearts of the people back to Himself. What an amazing story. What an amazing thing to be able to witness that. I can't imagine being... Uh, on Mount Carmel that day. To see the fire of God fall, I definitely would have fell on my face. Hopefully I wouldn't have been one of those people that turned the other way. But I would have definitely fallen and said, the Lord is God. The Lord, He is God. Now here's some points that I'd like to close with for our consideration. And that's this. First of all, idolatry isn't just about statues. It's not just about statues. There's a reason why the, the, the Ten Commandments says there shall be no other gods before me or you shall not make a graven image either because they can become idols. God is spirit and the believers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But we can all make idols of everything or anything. What's the idol in your life that you're holding on to that you won't let go? What is it? What is it that consumes and controls your joy that if it doesn't get fulfilled, you feel defeated? <coughs> And you get angry at people and you're more irritable if you don't get your idol. That's how you know if it's an idol, if it controls your joy. That's the first point I'd like us to take home. And the second is this. Prayer is our most powerful weapon. Use it. Are we learning? Do we know what it means to pray any longer? We're so busy. We're so busy. That we have, I mean, when I see a book that says one minute to pray, I have a hard time. God, I mean, God's only worth a minute of our time as we go through our day and filled with all these other things that are good things. Really, what we're doing is just throwing scraps to God. Here, God, fetch. God wants so much more. He wants to commune with us. Think about, for those who are a little bit older, when you first met your spouse and how just enthralled you were. Those that are younger, you might be in that stage right now. But how much you just delighted in spending time with them. You wanted to be in their presence. I remember when uh, my wife and I, she was, in, she was in Florida and I was in Illinois, and she'd write me these letters, and I would just savor them and smell them. Don't freak out. And I just enjoyed. I would look over every word carefully and reread it again and again and again. My heart just beat to read it. How many of us have a heart beats to commune with our Savior and Master who loves us more than any, any other human ever could? who gave His Son to die for us. Prayer is our most powerful weapon. We need to use it. And lastly, one life dedicated to God can change the world. These aren't in your notes. You can just write these down. One life dedicated to God can change the world. One statement that affected me when I was a boy, sitting in the church pew, hearing the pastor, preacher preach, quoted D.L. Moody. I'd never heard of D.L. Moody until that moment in time. 
Uh, we know the Moody Bible Institute is named after him. He was evangelist in the 19th century. He was an amazing, amazing man of God. Just, just amazing man of God. And he said this, and he would often preach this sermon. He, he would conclude a lot of his messages with this. The world is yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. I will try my utmost to be that man. How many of us are trying to be men and women of God that are fully consecrated to God, waiting to see what God will do through us? See, God can change the world through one man or woman dedicated to God, fully consecrated to Him, no matter what may come. I think of the African uh, bishop by the name of Athanasius, who is a very gigantic figure in church history. He was also a short man. They called him the Black Dwarf. And during the early centuries of Christianity, a certain debate came up. Um, Was Jesus of the same substance with God the Father? Or was He just like God the Father? He was more like us. He was simply God-like, not God. And this disagreement rose up. And there were two words that were being used that just very differed by one syllable or the other. And He was fighting with the Holy Roman Empire over the issue over who the person of Christ was. And much hung in the balance because Christianity at that time was divided between the group that followed Athanasius and then there was a greater group at the time that followed a heretic named Arius. And there was a question that hung in the balance. Was Jesus God or was He simply like God? And for some, the question was just semantical. Athanasius, after all, was quibbling over an iota, the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, because the word had one simple letter difference. Uh, Athanasius' word had one iota and the other one had none. But the issue was more than just linguistic. The question was, was Jesus God or merely God-like? The world was turning to Arius. And Athanasius, like lonely Elijah, silhouetted against the top of Mount Carmel, stood against the world. When Athanasius appeared before the emperor to make his plea, the emperor shouted. The ruler of the known world shouted at him, Athanasius, you pertinacious old man, don't you know the whole world is against you? The emperor himself was an Arian. Then Athanasius replied, I am against the whole world. And his stance... Because he refused to compromise, he refused to give in, ended up turning the tide in the direction of Christianity. God used him to, show that, to, to explain to other people to protect the truth that Jesus Christ is God. Not just like God, but He is God. And we are thankful. We are beneficiaries of His act. When He said, I am against the whole world. He was against the world, but he won. Elijah was against the world, and he won. And we too are against the world, but will we win? Jesus did. As he said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. As John said in 1 John, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you believe and trust in Jesus as the divine Son of God who came to save us from our sins, you will overcome. Not because what you have done, but because what He accomplished. It is through our faith in Him that we become overcomers with Him. That you can forsake those idols. That you can turn from them. His sacrifice on the cross enabled that chain, that link to sin to be broken, that you don't have to do it any longer. 
that you could turn to Him in repentance and in faith. And that's what I would encourage you. Reject any substitute that tries to replace God. Return to the Savior. Embrace Him. And then rejoice all over again in your salvation. Reject the substitutes. Return to the Savior in repentance. And rejoice in your salvation. Let's close our message time in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful for Elijah and what he did at Mount Carmel, how he stood for you according to your word, that he stood on the foundation of the word of God. Lord, help us to be so bold, to speak out against this world, to declare that it's, it's faulty, it's fallen, and it's in rebellion toward God. Lord, may we turn to you in repentance and faith, following you and you alone. Lord, help us not to live lives of compromise. Help us not to follow and bow down to the idols of this world. But help us to embrace you and you alone. Lord, turn our hearts back to you. Bring revival to our church. Help us to take a short, keep a short account of sin, to be fully aware of what you've done for us. Lord, may we, may we forsake our unbelief and completely trust in you and turn to you and live lives of faith and holiness. Lord, help us to pray to you. Help us to pray expectantly, knowing that you will answer when we pray according to your will and according to your word and in your timing. Lord, glorify Yourself in our midst. And Lord, if there's someone here today who says, I've been following the idols of this world, that I have not turned to Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that You might turn their heart to You, that they might see their sin and need of a Savior, that they might forsake that sin and embrace You, that they might confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead and they will be saved. Let there be transformation today. Let there be a whole heart that has been awakened to the reality of who You are by Your Spirit and by Your Spirit alone. Lord, purify us. Bring us closer to Yourself. And Lord, use us, whatever it may, may take, whatever it may cost. Lord, please use us to reach our, this world, this area for Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray expectantly that You do something in our midst that only You can receive glory for. Vindicate Your name. Show Yourself to be God in our midst. Help people to be forsake sin. Help marriages to be reconciled. Help relationships to be restored. And help individuals who are lost in sin and just living lives of complete duplicity. Bring them to the end of themselves and show them your mercy that you are the forgiving Savior and call them to yourself because you know, Lord, we know according to your word that you are the God, the Father who has his arms wide open for the prodigal to return home. Lord, we come to you in faith and repentance, trusting in you to do something more than we could ever ask or imagine. According to your, the glorious riches of Christ Jesus, Lord, we, we trust in you now. In Jesus' name, amen.